Hey there, welcome to the Echo Podcast, where we discuss how our hearts and minds can be an echo of God's heart and mind and what that even means in this world. We're Pastor Dan Sinkhorn and Adrian Terulo from Shiloh Church of Jasper, Indiana. And today we are going to, I guess, review or talk about the sermon from this last Sunday, which was the last Sunday of 2023. Mm-hmm. So this was December 31st. Um, New Year's Eve of 2023. And I'd like to open in a prayer today, switch it up a little bit. And so the reason for this is because we did our Wesleyan Covenant prayer uh, on Sunday. And for the few of you listening who don't go to Shiloh, um, the Wesleyan Covenant prayer was adapted by John Wesley. And it's just for renewal of the believer's covenant with God. So it's what we as Christians um, believe, I guess. So you're, mm-hmm. you're like giving yourself up to God. And it's, it's a very submissive prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, so here it goes. This is it. Listen up. Turn the volume up. Take a moment. <laughs> close your eyes. Unless you're driving, then don't do that. Here we go. <laughs> I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt, rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Thou art mine, and I am thine. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Amen. So this was a big focus of, uh, it was the focus of the sermon on Sunday. And it's, you placed a lot of like emphasis on it, and rightfully so, because this is not something that we should just say kind of like a a prayer before a meal or something like that. Like, this is a big deal. Um, And so you even made a point of saying, don't say this if you don't mean it, right? Because, like, you're saying this to God and to the heavenly hosts. All of heaven is hearing you. Um, And what a cool way to start the new year and to end the old year. It's just kind of like that period at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Um, So tell me a little bit about this prayer. Well... So it's a um, it's been a tradition for Methodists because John Wesley, I it's implied so much about him is very easily known because he was a prolific writer and you know he documented everything. But this one, the there's some question of the ap- absolute origin of it, but but he adapted this prayer and used it at a particular conference when they were at a crucial point. My phone is in my back pocket (laughs) making my chair make noises. Okay, so anyway, he started using this uh, prayer originally with this kind of crucial moment in the life of this new movement that he was a part of. And and he wanted to say to people, look, we're, if we create a new version of the old religion, then we really haven't accomplished anything here, you know. Mm-hmm. 
And so he was doing the same thing in his way, more eloquently, I'm sure, and with a snazzy British accent, but basically saying to people, look, the problem you have is you go to church and you benefit from that relationship with the church and the other people there, and yet you really don't mean it like you don't live like you mean it you know you it's, it's more complicated than that but it's just an ongoing theme of mine and I'm not out of the you know I'm not unusual in that I mean there there are Christians all over the world who look at church and they say well shoot what do church people have to offer to the kingdom of God and why should I want to be a part of that? You know, and, and so Wesley was basically calling them out, you know. And so what I do every year around the first of the year is that Sunday that usually follows New Year's Eve because of the way the calendar falls out. I will do that prayer. I, I, people know I'm going to do it every year around the first uh sunday of the year but in this case new year's eve was a sunday and so i was kind of tickled because it's something that traditionally is done on in a watch night service which is a methodist tradition that's not unique to methodist but it's something a lot of methodist churches do they have a new year's eve service where they worship their way into the new year and this is one of the things they do so I thought, well, cool, you know, we'll have we'll have a New Year's Eve version of this prayer, which was something kind of unique in my experience. So, so that was kind of what drove me. And, and again, it, it, it's always meant the same thing as near as I can tell. You pray that prayer because that prayer is like hitting the reset button, you know, and, and we all need to hit the reset button frequently in our walk with Christ um, because it's so easy to forget that Christ is the center of it all, that he's the reason we go to church. He's the reason that we live our lives differently. You know, that he's the, he is, you know, and, and I, you know, <laughs> I got to laugh because um, I do these uh, I do these things called sermon shots on Monday, and and you know eventually I hope I have a media person to do this, but for now it's me. So I spent my New Year's afternoon <laughs> working on this <laughs> because I was sleeping New Year's morning. But but anyway, I I got to busy at, at my desk and. And uh, I took a recording of the, the, the video of the sermon and, and then I go into this software I have called Sermon Shots and it helps me extract little tidbits. And, you know, it's, it's so I can be part of this cool world on the internet where cool people get little tidbits or, you know, YouTube shorts or Facebook uh, reels or I, I don't do TikTok, but I could, I guess, but I don't. Yeah. Anyway, I, I try to figure out, you know, if there's something catchy that got, might get people's attention. 
and give them, you know, a, a chance to find out whether people are talking about things in church that they might actually care about, you know, because my firm belief is, is that we live in a time when the vast majority of people in our communities drive by our churches and don't see them. And if they do see them, they don't really care what's going on in there. They certainly don't assume that they can come here, mm. you know, any more than I assume when I drive by the Fraternal Order of Eagles or the VFW or whatever, that I would be welcome there. It's funny you say that because I always wonder that when yeah. I drive by like a moose or something yeah. or a VFW or what's the other one? Uh it has like pool tables and, and bars or well, something. Well, I mean, they all pretty much have the same thing. They're, pretty much that. They're yeah. social organizations with a meeting room or meeting place. Uh, most of them have a kitchen and a bar and they serve food to their members. And they're, you know, like, like I said, veterans of foreign wars. They're the Elks, the Moose. You know, um, I think the Legion was the, the American one I was Legion, thinking of. Yeah. Right, yeah you and know. I always wonder if I'm welcome there. And uh, they're loosely referred to as fraternal clubs because they're usually men. But it just means that they got a place to play cards and drink and hang out. And, you know, but but the truth is, is that even some of them, you can go in there and, you know, that, that they're open to the public. You're, you can go in there and order a meal. And but you never know that. You don't so so what I'm saying is is people drive by the church all the time and assume that there's nothing there for them. And I can't say that I blame them. So I do these sermon shots uh, where I put these little 60 second snippets up on the internet and everything, just hoping that maybe somebody will say, well, that's an interesting point, you know, and, and somehow we're just giving people a reason to check us out, but there's no better way than to just go ask people, just invite them. But, but that's off topic. What I was getting at is, is that this Sunday in the sermon, I was trying to do exactly what I believe the spirit of the Wesley Covenant service is, which is to call people out and invite them to renew the covenant and abandon this worldliness that they have brought into the church, you know, because people have a tendency to try to make things in church the way they are in the world. But in fact, the church is there to help us make ourselves different from the world so that when we go into the world, we make the world more like what the church is. So we do exactly the opposite. And of course, you can thank, you know, our old enemy, the devil. But if you work at a local institution, work at a local factory or the hospital or a fast food restaurant or whatever, and you go to church on Sunday, the, the purpose of the church is to equip you and enhance your spiritual acumen so that you can go back into the hospital, the factory, you know, the, the fast food joint to be different. But what the church inevitably does is that it encourages people to come to the church to make it like it is at the factory or the hospital or the fast food restaurant or whatever. And I'm not picking on those places. I'm saying that the world afflicts the church and actually the church is supposed to infect the world. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like the world 
the world makes us fight with each other in church, just like we do outside of church. You know, we, we argue about politics. We argue about the color of carpet. We, we argue or we, we try to secularize what we're doing so that it somehow meets a need that honestly you could get met a hundred different ways outside the church that you know this really should be a unique place where something really different happens and i i can imagine some people trying to take me to task over that but i i could flesh it out in the next hour or so but i don't think that would be wise I'm really just saying that that at the end of the day, the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is a message about being foreigners in this land, that, that we're no longer citizens of the world. We're citizens of the kingdom of Christ. And that covenant prayer is sort of like saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the kingdom of Christ. And not only that, we're getting ready to start this series on the Insurgents uh, book by Frank Viola. And one of the things he does to kind of open the conversation is he says, you know, why were people willing to go to their deaths rather than pledge allegiance to Caesar? Because they believed that they had already pledged their allegiance to Jesus Christ and to pledge to another would be, you know, a breach of, of covenant with Christ. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I didn't even go there Sunday, although I will be this Sunday going there. And so when I said to people, you know, before you say this covenant prayer, I'd like you to think about some things. I'd like you to think about the fact that in the prayer you say, let it be ratified in heaven. In the prayer, you're saying it out loud next to someone else who's saying it out loud, which means you've got a witness. Mm -hmm. you got a whole room full of witnesses. We all heard you say it, and you heard us say it, so you will be there to remind me that I said it. So it's written in God's record book in heaven that you pledged this allegiance to Christ, uh, this covenant prayer, it's recorded, yeah, literally recorded on our video of the church service that you said you pledged allegiance to Christ in this covenant prayer. It's recorded in the memories of the people around you who heard you pray it. And the devil heard you pray it. And so don't say it unless you mean it, because this is serious business. And then I, I told the congregation, if you understand that you are, in effect, doing the same things that the signers of the Declaration of Independence did, because when they signed that document, they were pledging their allegiance to their new country, and they were defying their old country, and their name was on that document. And you know what that meant? That meant they were signing their own death warrant should their cause fail. So the signers of the Declaration of Independence knew that putting their name on that document meant that they had to succeed or they would be executed because their name was on that document. So you wouldn't take it lightly that you signed that document. 
you would be pretty dang sure that you were going to win or that you were willing to die to make a point. So I really, really drove that point home during the service or during the sermon because I just wanted people to take this prayer that seriously. I wanted them to imagine that being a Christian and going to church on Sunday just isn't about you. And it never should be. And I started to tell you, I do these sermon shots. And I put one up on Monday where I said, more people worship their church building and noodle dinners than Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ should be the only thing on the Christian's mind or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it went viral for me, you know, because, because I mean, most of the things I put on the internet, even this podcast, get pretty small numbers compared to the real viral superstars, right? Sure. But so in a world where we get 30 or 40 people or maybe 50 people uh, tuning into our podcast or listening to our uh, sermon shots or whatever, I got like 1,580 views of that particular quote and oh, at least wow. one person who said something snarky about it. Yeah. Which I take as a not a compliment because it was an insulting remark, but I take that as an indication that I struck a nerve because I said, look at all these people who go to church to worship their building and their noodle dinners, when in fact they should be worshiping Christ. And, you know, that would be my point. And, and so all of that to say, that's what happened on Sunday morning. I... I do this every year, but I have to admit that every year I get older, I also get just a little less, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I, eloquent. I, I don't try to beat around the bush. I don't try to, I, I just, I have nothing to lose by telling people the truth. If you pray this prayer and then you don't act like it meant something, shame on you. I'll just tell them that now. I never used to say things like that. But I've just reached the point where, you know what? We have to get the church turned around. And to a certain extent, I'm asking the impossible, and I know it, because the church has been corrupt pretty much since the day it got organized. Because whenever you organize anything, this process of organizing has a way of corrupting something very organic and natural you know i i mean it's a terrible example but it just popped into my head so i'm going to try it out when you put a dam on a river or a stream you're organizing the flow of the water and there's good that comes from that until you find out like 20 years later that the salmon population has been decimated because your dam has prevented something natural from happening. Mm -hmm. And so you realize that if you want the benefits of organizing the flow of the water and you also want the salmon to reproduce, you've got to figure out a way to do both. Right. Yeah. It's just an example. It popped into my head and I'm thinking, see, that's the thing, you know, is, is that I would love for church to possess a certain authentic, 
organic nature where things just happen because the spirit's moving things happen because people don't get hung up on themselves and get in the way that pastors don't get hung up on their ego and feel threatened because someone else wants to be the star of the show once in a while or or it looks like that you know it's like i try really hard to create an environment where natural organic things can happen mm-hmm but one of the things that inevitably occurs is, is when it does produce something really awesome, you know, like, like for whatever reason, you get the formula right and you throw some seed and you get just the right amount of sunshine and water and everything. And all of a sudden this stuff's growing like crazy. And then along comes Adrian, who's a real plant nut. And she says, I got to trim this or it's going to get out of hand. Mm-hmm. Right. And, yeah. and and you're you're saying for its own sake, I've got to help it grow in a healthy way. And so that's a sort of process of organizing. So you're asking something organic to happen, but you're also share this is what the Bible the Bible doesn't use this word per se, but a very Christian biblical concept is the idea of stewardship. And it's the idea that that you you want natural things to happen, but you also have to partake in it. It's it's what Adam and Eve were challenged to do, you know, in the garden was to 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 kind of join God in managing it, you know. And and so there's nothing wrong with organizing and 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 arranging and managing and stewarding organic natural things. The problem is, is that it inevitably becomes more important than the organic thing. We end up becoming more uh, obsessed with the organizing than cultivating the natural thing that was happening. You know, is the goal to run a very efficient farm or is the goal to harvest as much uh, of the fruit that you can? You know, it, it, it's like, well... Isn't that what an efficient farm does? Right. Well, not necessarily. Sometimes the farm becomes defined as efficient because it makes more money than it loses. Sometimes the farm becomes defined as efficient because uh, the equipment doesn't break down as frequently. You know, and We can get really hung up on what it means to be effective stewards and miss the fact that we're no longer developing natural things because we get too busy caught up you know so i i don't know i'm really going off on a tangent but i think looking at your face i think you get where i'm going with this Mm -hmm. what i'm saying is is that when when i look at the church it's like we have to stop periodically and have these reset moments where we have to center ourselves again on what the main thing is and the main thing is devotion to and obedience to Jesus Christ, who has equipped us with the couple of things that we need in order for that to happen naturally. One of them is, is that we are living in God's grace now because of Jesus, which means that we don't have to worry about maintaining a rigid set of rules in order to make sure that we're still in a right relationship with God. Jesus has made us righteous, so we don't have that problem. Then he says, I've given you the Holy Spirit. And in fact, I've asked you to just let the Holy Spirit take over your inner being so that you're born again in in my image. You're made to be like me. 
And because you live in a fallen world, you're sort of a square peg trying to fit in a round hole, and that's always going to be problematic. But in the end, he's taking care of the big problems for us so that we can naturally develop into people devoted to being like him, doing what he asks us to do, and basically shaping ourselves uh, into his image so that one day when he reigns on earth, the hole's not round anymore. It's his shape. And we're not trying to fit into a world that we don't fit into anymore. We're being more conformed to what we will eventually fit into like a hand in a glove because it's his hand. It's his glove. It's so, I mean, that that's kind of the idea. And it all comes back to why did we say this prayer on Sunday? Well, because you have to reset periodically and it's got to be something consequential and serious. Otherwise, you can become so conformed to the world that you don't even know it, Mm. you know, and people do this all the time and then complain because church doesn't meet their needs, you know, because church isn't filling them up, you know, well, I'm just not being fed here. Really? Well, what exactly do you want, you know? Um, I would be more inclined to accept that statement if it was coming from somebody who was going to a lifeless, worldly church that really was just trying to feed its people. You know, a loving parent feeds children food that is healthy and gives them medical care and treatment and, and requires them to keep certain disciplines so that they can survive a dangerous childhood and become functional adults you know and and that that's what love does it deals in truth and truth that transforms you know because you wanted me to remember this remember what we were talking about a little while ago because you wanted me to come back to it yeah so you know set me up for that one and uh it was about truth yeah it was about truth, and you were talking about how we're all seekers of truth, but what even is truth? And so truth is what you want it to be, but yeah. it shouldn't be what you want it to be. But you said it a lot better. Well, truth, so so for most people, and, and I mean, we're going through a period in American culture right now, in Western culture, where this is running amok, but, but for, for even the so-called Bible-believing conservative Christian, truth is subjective. It comes down to the things that influence you. you. You assume that the world is right when it conforms to a particular expectation that you have. So you're defining righteousness, and, and righteousness is a word that basically means right with God right? But most of us aren't defining righteousness by whether we're right with God. We define righteousness according to our cultural norms. Hmm. And most cultural norms are not as broad as we think they are. Um, Most people's cultural norms are basically arranged around the beliefs of a hundred or fewer people. 
I mean, honestly, think about the things that shape your beliefs. Think about the things that shape your idea of what normal is. If you've never ever lived or been around certain other people's cultural norms, then when you're in their world, which seems very natural and normal to them, you feel like an alien. So, you know, for example, I, I did some, some uh, mission work in West Chicago. Uh, and I'm in a world where people can ride the L train that passes right over their street. They can ride that train for 15 minutes and they can go to Lake Michigan and be on a beach. And yet they've spent their whole lives right on that street, right in that neighborhood around a block or two of that neighborhood. And they've never ridden that train. They've never seen Lake Michigan. It's just 15 minutes away, but they've never seen it. Their whole world is defined by how they see things from the perspective of their neighbors and their family members, their church or their drug friends or whatever. It's all shaped around this idea that most of these people have never left this sphere of three or four or five blocks. And the reason is because there's risk involved with going outside of your safe space, such as it is. Now, here I am, a guy who's had the opportunity to travel all over the country, all over the world, and I've known people from all different backgrounds, and then I'm in this neighborhood, and I'm trying to comprehend this. And my brain just wants to explode because it's incomprehensible to me. So they're normal makes them look at me and go, what's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. And I'm looking at them going, what's wrong with you? Well, the truth is, there's nothing wrong with either one of us. The truth is, is that we're viewing the world through the lens that we have ground and shaped or had ground and shaped for us, you know, um, we're blind and the only world we can see is through the lenses that we've been given and that we've maintained, you know, and I'm blessed because I've had a much broader expression of that than some people, which means that my lenses have been changed. I've been changing my literal prescription <laughs> regularly. And it turns out that my kind of worldview prescription has been changing regularly too which is a blessing, but the vast majority of people, and, and I've, I, lest I get off on a crazy tangent, you know, so we're talking about truth. And, and so what I said to you earlier is, is that, you know, you're dealing, you know, cause you were talking about a problem with somebody that, that uh, is probably just not mentally capable of being better than they are at this point in their life. And so the choices that they make are really limited to their scope. Mm-hmm. And their scope is really small. They're looking through the world through through a cardboard tube. They're looking at the world through, you know, uh, a cup in their hands and making a little, you know, imaginary telescope. So they their world is very limited. You know, it, it's I guess some people call those silos. But 
the the reality is is that i've you know i've gone to church all my life and i've been the pastor of churches now for like 27 28 years and i'm always being confronted with people who tell me what church is about and what it's supposed to be like and i don't say this with any malice of forethought and i certainly don't have a, a high opinion of myself but it's ironic to me because my job is to define that for them, not to come to their community and live in their parsonage and pastor their church, accommodating what they want me to do. And it's like, that's like going to your doctor and saying, doctor, I have diabetes and I want you to fix it. And I want you to fix it this way. And this is what I want you to use. And I don't want to be your patient unless you do my health care the way that I'm telling you to do it. Hmm. It, it, That's how I look at it. And again, I don't I don't say that with any meanness or anything. I swear I don't say it as someone who thinks I'm better than anybody. I'm saying you you're part of a church that's part of a religious system that provides you with qualified clergy and then when the clergy show up you tell them how to do their job you tell them what the church should be like you tell them when they're going outside the boundaries you know like if i preach something on a sunday morning that you don't agree with you tell me that that just ain't right when in fact i'm the one with the authority the training the anointing whatever presumably. Mm -hmm. And it means that if I'm telling you something you don't want to hear, maybe it's you that's got this wrong. Mm. You know, now again, I'm using that as an illustration. This is not about Dan or his ego or it's nothing. That's not what I mean by this. What I'm driving at is, is that when we talk about truth, everybody wants the truth that works best for them. Everybody wants to believe the truth that serves their interest. And therefore, you've got people who say, what is truth? Is there anything that's absolutely true? Well, I hope so. Because if gravity isn't absolutely true, then I don't have to worry if the airplane runs out of gas before it gets where it's going, you know. So, and that's just an illustration, but there are absolute truths. And so people say, well, there's no absolute truths when it comes to morality. Oh, I think so. I think so. I think it's absolutely true that your life is sacred to you and that no one has the right to take it away from you. And yet you would say that it's morally subjective whether we kill babies in the womb or not. You might say it's morally subjective that that uh, exi- Islamic extremists murder people because they feel oppressed. And, you know, so we, we do, we deal in moral objectivism all the time or subjectivism. We, we deal in it all the time because we want truth to conform to our expectations. But truth comes home to roost when it's about you and you want your truth to be the one that the people around you live by. So this brings me back to my idea that, 
that you are really influenced by what goes on or with a, within a group of 100 people or so. Because most of your life is defined by the small group of people you work with. Because even if you work in a big corporation, you work with a few people. Your life is defined by this small group of people that you hang out with and you call your friends. Uh, you're defined by this small group of people that are your family and you have certain obligations that drive you to show up at their house every Sunday afternoon for dinner or whatever. Like, like they're, you know, whatever it is that motivates you, the reason that you hang out with certain people is because you feel that you want to or you have to. And those people have influence over how you view the world and how you view your life and how you view truth. And if you and your 50 to 100 associates all agree that truth is a certain set of things, it doesn't matter whether that's true or not. Because you're not encountering anybody who disagrees with you. Hmm. So imagine that 90% of the churches in the United States are churches of 100 people or less. And they all agree about truth. And that's why their pastors might get up in the pulpit someday and say, well, I don't agree with those Methodists. I think if you're going to get baptized, you got to go all the way under the water. It doesn't count because the Methodists sprinkle. Well, what kind of ridiculous thing is that to talk about on Sunday morning anyway? Right. Well, it's perfectly reasonable if you're talking to 100 people who agree with you about everything anyway. <laughs> but on what plain does it serve the kingdom of god mm. so every year at the beginning of the year i really want to deal with this covenant prayer but this year is particularly poignant because the next sunday this coming sunday we're going to begin talking about frank's book insurgents reclaiming the kingdom of christ and the whole point is is that if we are if we are committed to being citizens of Christ's kingdom, then that kingdom becomes the realm wherein our truth exists. That kingdom of Christ is the place where the truth is found. Okay? Not my kingdom of family, friends, and work associates, and church friends, and so forth. Truth is found in the kingdom of Christ. And kingdom is a word that is derived from the kingship of the ruler. And so when we say we live in the kingdom of Christ, what we're saying is, is he's the king and we're the citizens of his kingdom. And we're subject to his rule and reign. And we willingly subject ourselves to his rule and reign. We joyfully subject ourselves to his rule and reign. And that means that whatever Christ says is true, is true. In fact, he says he is the truth and the light. And in a biblical sense, light is way more important than darkness. And darkness is equated with sin, with evil, with all sorts of bad things. And light is all the good and, and all that is good. And, and, and so, you know, he's saying, I am light. 
I am all that's good and right. I am truth. And so from that, I can say, if you worship your noodle dinners and your church building, you're not worshiping the right thing because the only thing a Christian should worship, the only thing that Christians should thoroughly devote themselves to is King Jesus. And because he's the king that is not afflicted by sin and not corrupted by sin, he is going to rule with perfect righteousness, with perfect grace and love. And that doesn't mean that his leadership in your life doesn't occasionally lead you to pain or correction, but it all is toward Christian perfection, uh, you know, toward toward being conformed to his image, you know? And, and so that's what that whole prayer was about. That's why I was telling people on Sunday morning, don't pray this unless you mean it, because you're saying, Lord, put me to what thou wilt. Put me to doing what you want or not doing what you don't want me to do. Put me alongside people or away from people according to your desire. It's a commitment. It's a pledge of allegiance to King Jesus. Now, people understood that in the early days of the church, and that's why they would not pledge allegiance to Caesar. That's why they would not devote anything to false gods or anything like that, even if they were going to be put to death for it. And that's, that's truth. So what is sin? Well, denying the truth. <laughs> sin in a nutshell, I, I call it pride sometimes, quite frequently, but really, you know, pride is, is denying the truth, that you're a sinner, that you are not worthy of God's grace, but he gives it to you anyway. You are not putting God in the right perspective, therefore you are sinning. You know, that, that you don't manage your relationship with God in a way that reflects who God is and who you ain't. Therefore, it's sin, right? And the truth is we'll all fall short of that glory until we've been made over and transformed entirely and completely through resurrection. But for now, we strive for it. You know, because if we're not striving toward it, we'll slide backward. You know, it's it's a slippery slope. And the only way we keep from sliding down into the abyss, into the darkness, is by constantly striving for the, the heights. Yeah, this world has a way of kind of pulling us with its grips. Mm -hmm. um, I've been sitting here thinking that I think God's timing through your timing of this prayer was perfect because I was reflecting back on last week's podcast about how God is not a cosmic vending machine, right? And um, this prayer is the exact opposite of the idea that God is a cosmic vending machine. It's saying that, God, I'm going to follow you no matter what. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many people in the world today pray for God to give them suffering. Like that's in that prayer. Mm -hmm. You know, how many people pray to God, let me be empty. Huh? Rank me with who you want me to be with. 
These are countercultural ideas. Mm-hmm. You listen to anybody pray out loud, and it's, Dear Lord, thank you so much for bringing us together. Thank you for this food. Thank you for all that you do for us. Um, whatever. I mean, everybody has different styles. But how many people are saying, Lord, give me suffering if it's your will. I want it if it's your will. What? Corey Ten Boom uh, was very famous for many years in the last century. And if you've never ridden the ridden, Read, excuse me, if you've never read The Hiding Place, it's the story of Corrie ten Boom and her sister, who were Dutch, and they're uh, hiding out from Jews, or from from the Nazis and protecting Jews. So, I'm just, great book, you really need to read it. It's called The Hiding Place. It's the story of Corrie ten Boom, and she and her Dutch family uh, tried to resist the Nazis as best they could during the invasion of, of their homeland. The Nazis are actively pursuing Jews in order to eliminate them and send them off to death camps. Her family is trying to help. Uh, her family is condemned to concentration camps because of that. They're eventually you know they they lost their parents but Corey and her sister were in a concentration camp and her sister who died um once prayed in the concentration camp in their barracks which are basically wooden shelves stacked to the ceiling for beds mm-hmm. thanking god for the fleas and the other bugs that were afflicting them in this filthy environment. Her sister is thanking God for them because the guards won't come in because they don't want the bugs to get on them. Ah. Uh, huh. And her sister says, thank you, Lord, for this little mite that is chewing on my leg because these bugs keep the guards from coming in here and interfering with our sanctity, with our little refuge here. We have to share it with these bugs in order to not share it with these Nazi thugs. (laughs) (laughs) I just said something sort of poetic there. Yeah. That was not her words. Those are mine. I'm only taking that credit because she would have said it better. But I just, I'll never forget that. There were so many things I learned from reading the book, The Hiding Place. But just the idea that her sister, she, Corey Ten Boom was pretty stout Christian. Let me tell you, she was pretty remarkable lady. And yet she thought more highly of her sister because her sister's humility was so significant that her sister could lay there in bed slapping at the bugs that are chewing her flesh and thanking God for them because that's why the guards won't come into their barracks. <laughs> Which means they can talk about whatever they want. They can, console, they can console each other. They can help each other. There were a number of benefits that they felt they gained from the fact that the guards would never set foot in their building. <laughs> and, and she saw that as a victory. You know, she thanked God for that. See when you pray in the spirit of that covenant 
And and I don't want this to sound like that prayer, that Wesley Covenant prayer is the thing. It's not the thing. It's it's not we're not worshiping Wesley, we're not worshiping a prayer. What we're saying is is that we take some words that he crafted for the purpose that we are focused on. And the purpose is to remember who we are in Christ and to dedicate ourselves to that. Thanking God that he gave us roommates who are nasty little bugs that keep the oppressors from hurting us. You know, put mm-hmm. me with whom thou wilt, even if it's bed bugs, <laughs> you know, yeah. put me with whom thou wilt, even if they like hymns more than contemporary music. Put me with whom thou wilt, even if they like that hideous carpet in the sanctuary that I wish they would replace. Put me with whom thou wilt, if they are people that just talk incessantly and I don't ever want to go to a friendship eight dinner with them again. (laughs) Church is funny. It's full of very human people who do things that aren't very Christian and then justify it by saying, but this is truth, but this is what church is. When you tell people something they don't want to hear in church, they accuse you of being unchristian because you made them feel bad. Newsflash, sometimes the truth hurts. And not because I happen to get lucky and get it right once in a while. It hurts because it's true. You know, it's true and it hurts because it's true. And it has nothing to do with who delivered the truth or how they delivered the truth. The truth is what it is. And we have to be willing to embrace that. And that covenant prayer is an example of how you embrace that. Lord, you are the truth. You are the light. You are the only thing that matters. And no one knows what matters more than you do. So if I can't figure out what matters, I can at least figure out how to to follow the person that does know what matters. You know, it's like if I'm lost in the woods and I don't know where I'm going, but I am certain that you do know where you're going, then the smartest thing I can do is focus on you and let you lead me out of the wilderness because I can't find my own way out. You know, it's a weird analogy, but it's just, it's that simple. You can't know what truth is, but you know who the truth is. And it's Jesus Christ. So why on earth does the church get so busy doing nonsense that doesn't make any difference because it has nothing to do with obeying Christ and following Christ? You know, that person that teased me online because they didn't understand my noodle dinner remark and or didn't take it the way that it was delivered is they were t- their comment was is that the lord's going to judge you because you don't teach from the bible and i'm thinking what on earth about what i said in that 40 second clip would give you a reason to think i don't teach from the bible the last thing i said in that 40 second clip was the only thing a christian should be focused on is jesus christ
Where do you think I got that idea? <laughs> From the Bible. <laughs> right. From the one who said in the Bible, I am the truth. Right. You know, it's like, so I, you know, so why would you say such a thing unless you just got offended by what I said and stopped hearing what I was meaning? Because what I was meaning was is that Christians who go to church all the time and seem to spend all sorts of energy worshiping the Bible. Guess what? You can go to church and worship the Bible and not worship the one who is the truth and the light. See, the Bible is an expression of God's word, God's heart and mind. And it isn't the book or the version of the book that we are devoted to. It's the word contained within it, barely contained within it. It can hardly hold the word between its bindings, you know, like like people worship the Bible. I got I people all the time, you know, tell me that, you know, King James only, man, only the King James Bible. That's the one Jesus carried, you know, as if to say that they know better than that, but they give you the impression that if you're reading the wrong version of the Bible, that somehow you're wrong. And so they worship the King James Bible, but what they're really worshiping is a truth that their little small society has all agreed upon. And so once again, we're back to this hundred or fewer people who all agree that the King James Bible is the only Bible. And therefore you're convinced because you don't want to be wrong in their eyes that the King James Bible is the only one that's trustworthy. So then you knock somebody else because they're reading from a different version of the Bible with the self-righteousness that you don't deserve because you only represent yourself and a handful of other people, not the truth. But if I say to you, the Bible I hold in my hands, flawed that it might be because of the variations and translations and so forth, at the end of the day, if the word of God, that is the heart and mind of God, transmits itself somehow from this book to me, and it changes my very nature, and it is a way of, it is a means of God's grace that causes me to live in and have the spirit of Christ through me. You know, if you see Christ in me, and you see it through the obedience and the submission and the devotion to Christ, and I read a Bible that you don't, are you going to deny that the word or the heart and mind of God has communicated to me? You know what I'm, I'm kind of saying that in the reverse order, but, but I'm developing the thought right off the top of my head. The idea is as simple as this. You read whatever version of the Bible you have, the Holy Spirit enters into your being, changes your nature. Suddenly you are, or over time, you are this person who's clearly very devoted to Christ, who is living in his image more and more every day so that your sanctification grows day in and day out and you're moving closer and closer to the heart and mind of God or holiness. All of this is happening in your life and someone's going to completely discount it because you did it with an NIV Bible instead of a KJV Bible. Hmm. That's my point. Yeah. Right? People would knock you 
because you embarrass and shame them when you say that they worship noodle dinners in their church building more than they worship Christ because that hurt. And then they knock you for it and they say, well, you didn't quote scripture. You said that off the top of your head. It doesn't count because it's not out of the Bible. Well, I beg to differ. Jesus said, you Pharisees, you teachers of the law, you, you want to enforce the law right down to every jot and tittle. That is every little piece of punctuation. You want to oppress people with the law. And I tell you that you don't understand the heart of the law. And he says, I came to set people free. Like I could tell you that everything I said about noodle dinners and uh, Christ being the center of everything in a Christian's life, it's all over the New Testament. Everything I said was a very short version of the Sermon on the Mount, I guess. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Be because... Because Christ is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, his manifesto, he's saying, do as I do, say as I say, because I'm the truth. The Father and I are one. So when I tell people that if you go to church and Christ isn't the primary focus, then please don't call yourself Christian and don't pray no covenant prayer. Mm -hmm. Anyway. I think there's an introspective question lying underneath all of this. And I've been thinking about it this whole time of like, so it's the new year. We're entering the new year. And this is the time of year where people think about diet, right? They think about diet and going to the gym and starting better habits and all of these things, new habits, whatever. And it's a question of what are you feeding yourself? Mm -hmm. What are you consuming? Is it healthy? Is it not healthy? And that includes the people we surround ourselves with. Mm -hmm. Are the people around us healthy? Are they, are they pointing us to the one and only truth? Or are they pointing us to their truth? I think that's a good question for all of us to ask ourselves as we enter this year. Well, I, tell, I told my kids quite a lot when they were growing up that the best thing they could do is judge what they're hearing and seeing by the fruit that it bears. And I learned this from my own experience is, you know, when a person says to me that they hold the truth, that their view of the world is right, the first thing I want to see is, is what kind of fruit does their life bear? If this is their truth that they're holding on to, what has it produced? And you know what? When, when somebody in your life is influencing you significantly and then you see that, you know, they're not physically healthy, there are people close to them who really despise them and would escape from them if they could. Um, if they are so sure of their truth and their way of thinking, and yet their life looks like it's full of chaos. They're oppressed by bad habits, uh, addictions. You know, um, I, was telling, I was telling our coworker and our colleague Katrina the other day, you know, I get so tired 
of being around people in church who want to tell me how we can do things better because they used to be an expert on that. Mm. And the first thing I ask myself is, is, well, why aren't you still? You know, like the guy who says to me, I think that you can do safety and security in the church better because I used to be a cop. And I think to myself, well, why aren't you still a cop? And why is it that you, oh, I know that if this gets heard, it's going to be taken very painfully. But, but I've had many people tell me things like that where they say, well, I used to be an expert until, until what? Until those people couldn't stand me anymore. Mm. Until my way of doing it, my interpretation of the truth failed to do what the common expectation was. Um, I'm trying, I'm dancing around the term. I'm saying, you know, so basically you used to be an expert at something, but you got fired. You used to be an expert at something, but you found that no matter where you worked, no matter how you did the job, you always failed. <laughs> and then you convinced yourself that it was somebody else's fault. That's the fruit that your worldview has produced. See, I always say that the pastor's primary goal is to nurture a Christian biblical worldview in the people of the church. And I've seen failed pastors who say, well, you know, that church, we just didn't get along very well. But one of these days, they're going to send me to a church where it's going to work out really well. So you keep trying and failing. And, you know, I see people in all different places in their lives where the fruit they bear is not yielding anything but chaos and oppression. And you know who I blame for chaos and oppression. Now, do I think that those people are demon-possessed, evil people? No. What I'm saying, though, is that the seed you're sowing is yielding weeds and thistles and, and that stinky skunk cabbage that grows down in the muck, you know, and, and you keep thinking that, <laughs> that your doo-doo doesn't stink, right? I'm, I'm channeling Martin Luther here, by the way. I, I read another quote of his the other day that just makes me think that he and I would have had a lot of laughs together in his good days because he was just direct. And if it was caca, it was caca, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm saying. It's like there are so many people out there who are convinced that they're right and convinced that the world ought to function the way they think it should, but the fruit that it bears inevitably is poison. And every now and again, every century or so, one of those kooks actually rises to a position of incredible power and becomes a Hitler or a Stalin or becomes a Kim Jong somebody or other in North Korea or whatever. They, they, or they become the next radical terrorist uh, organization leader. And what does the fruit they bear look like? It looks like death and destruction and decay. It looks like 
chaos and oppression. So to put it back down to where most of us live and our small influence of a hundred or fewer people, when you think about who you're listening to or who's doing all the talking, ask yourself what sort of fruit they bear. If they talk like they do, but they can't get along with their own spouse, that sends some concern up my spine. If they talk like they do about what's right and as it should be in the world, and yet they're alienated from their own children, I can see fruit that doesn't line up with what they're saying. So you could talk about truth, but the truth comes down to this. And I, I'll try to say this in a way that if you want to wrap with it, you can, right? Wrap up. But because when I was a kid, we rapped, which is what we've been doing for the last hour, right? Yeah, I was thinking, I, I, I don't write rap songs. I don't know. Okay, go ahead. Anyway, I'm, I'm just going to say this. And if you want, we can finish on it. But, but there are people out there who hold in their hands watermelon seeds and they lay them out in front of you and say, this is truth. These are banana seeds. And then they throw them onto the soil and later on watermelons come up and they say, no, those are banana trees. The fruit you bear is the best evidence of what your truth yields. And if you bear, dare I say, Christian disciples as sort of spiritual children, this is often as I feel about you, you, you and, and numbers of others like you in this community who have been like spiritual children to me. If, if my legacy is people who are devoted to Christ, if that's the fruit I bear, if my legacy is ending oppression and chaos in the local church, and people say, once this place was covered in weeds and no good fruit could grow here, and now good fruit grows all the time, and we know that good fruit when we see it because it looks like disciples of Jesus Christ, people who love Jesus more than noodle dinners and the paint we use on the wall. If that's my legacy, good. That's fruit that I think is worth bearing. Then again, that's my truth. But does it echo the truth that comes from Scripture? Does it echo the truth that comes from the heart and mind of God? If it does, I'll go there. But so many people who go to church leave bitterness and chaos, frustration and anger. They get mad and quit and leave behind a whole people that are saying, good, don't let the door hit you on your way out. Well, golly, what a wonderful testimony to the spirit of Christ in this Christian institution. Angry people and someone out there mouthing off about how awful those people are and how terrible that pastor is. And it's like, yeah, there's a legacy for you, right? Yeah. Let us be known by the way we keep that covenant. 
Let us be remembered like Corrie Ten Boom's sister because she could thank God for the fleas and the mites. Let us be known by the fruit that we bear. Yeah. And understand that if the fruit you bear is betraying the truth about you, <laughs> you know, like, like so that's what I was getting at. I know it didn't come out very eloquently, but that's what I was getting at when I said the people that say I used to be. I was, just, I was saying I judge the fruit. If that's what you used to be and you were better at it than everybody else you worked with, but somehow they're still at it and you're gone, then it sounds like the fruit that you think you bore isn't the fruit that you actually bore. And then you start looking at all the other fruit in their lives and you realize that they don't have healthy relationships with the people that are the most precious in their lives, their sons, their daughters, their parents, their spouses, their dog. You know, I've said for years, if your dog likes me and your two-year-old likes me, I'm probably all right. Because yeah. they're great judges of character. Yeah. <laughs> so true. That's good truth. I think that's a wrap for today. That's a wrap. See you next week. Bye, guys.